Hello and welcome everyone. I'm Alex Bridgman and this is Think Like an Owner. This show is an exploration on acquiring, operating, and growing small companies through conversations with business owners and private investors. You can learn more and stay up to date on this podcast, our weekly newsletter, and print publication, The Operator's Handbook at alexbridgman.com. And follow me on Twitter at AEBridgman. And if you like the show, please leave a review and tell a friend to help more folks find Think Like an Owner. My guest in this episode is Brandon Kukta, former CEO of Analytical Technologies Group, which provides repair, maintenance, and contract services for lab instruments. I say former because he sold ATG last October, and today's episode is going to cover all things selling a company, from determining the right timing, what is typical in a process, and communication across stakeholders. We also talk about life after the sale, including Brandon's consulting period with the new owners, and how operators can relax and give themselves a well-deserved and often much-needed break. Enjoy. Today's Q&A is with Lexi Grant, founder of They Got Acquired, a media business covering small company exits. What advice would you give to someone looking to sell their company? The first piece of advice I'd give is think about why do you want to sell? What are you hoping to get out of a sale? What are your own personal dreams? What do you see yourself doing on the other side? We talked to a lot of founders who think about a sale from the financial perspective, which is obviously important. I mean, you're building a business because you want to have an asset you can sell one day, but too many overlook the more personal, almost like emotional side of selling. (laughs) And then they get to the end of that sale and don't have a plan for what they want to do next. So one of the topics that we end up covering a lot on our site is, hey, how should you think about a sale on the personal side, like not just prepping your business and your team and your financials, you know, your systems, how do you prep your own personal financials and your own personal game plan for what it's going to look like for you in the future to make sure it's a win? Awesome. Thanks, Lexi. To learn more about They Got Acquired, check out their website at theygotacquired.com, subscribe to their newsletter, and get in touch with Lexi if you're considering selling your company in the coming months or years. I also want to thank our other show sponsors, Live Oak Bank, Hood & Strong, Oberly Risk Strategies, More Staffing, and Oakbourne Advisors for supporting the show. And now to the episode. It's good to see you. I think a good place would to start would be kind of describing the business you ran and then a little bit of the process of selling. We don't need numbers, but just kind of like tell us a little bit about the business model process for selling, and then that'll kind of lead into some of your thoughts that you've developed around selling a business. Yeah. So the business I acquired with my brother was a niche laboratory equipment service business based in Southeastern Connecticut. So in essence, the company has a fleet of field service engineers who travel throughout the country performing maintenance on various types of fairly niche pharmaceutical biotech equipment that's primarily located in research and development labs. And we were very focused on really two different types of OEM branded products that are pretty ubiquitous in labs. So our company was really a leading independent service provider that was an alternative to the original equipment manufacturer for service. Gotcha. And then how did you kind of connect with the eventual buyer? Was Did they reach out and was this a relationship you had for a while? Like, How did that start? No, so we had hired a bank to represent us in the process. And luckily, we did have a referral from a few people a year old, many, uh, a number of years older than us who had sold their search company. And they gave us a lead of a, a firm based in New York that's pretty experienced in selling companies, among other things. But they were a terrific advisor for us. And via that introduction, we ended up formally engaging them to represent us. Gotcha, gotcha. Was there anything, like what told you that it was time to sell? Like, how did you think through, okay, this is the time to sell the business? Was it anything to do with market cycle, personal life, place in the business? What what told you it was time to start looking at selling? Right. Yeah, I think actually it was the intersection of a number of those things. So when I think about search fundamentally, I, I really associate it, associate it very closely with autonomy. And I think... As a business owner, at any particular point in time, if you think that you, for, for, for personal or other reasons, something else is kind of calling you and over time running a business, you think that your efforts would better be expended somewhere else. That's a good indication you might want to start thinking about a sale. 
So for me personally, I was kind of based in New York from a personal perspective, but was also running a business in Southeastern Connecticut and then eventually north of Boston. We did one add-on acquisition. And while it was an incredible journey over time, that definitely does demand a lot of your time and resources away from some of my personal engagements in New York. And I have a lot of family in the area that I wasn't able to see quite as frequently. So I did ultimately want to return to a bit of normalcy in which I kind of be grounded in one area versus constantly traveling up I-95, you know, many hours, Monday and Friday every week. So that was kind of on the personal end of things. In terms of the company itself, we definitely had a nice you know, multi-year record of you know, pretty strong growth in both businesses. And when you are a young entrepreneur and you bought a business, and if it does luckily go according to plan, I think there is something to be said about you know, having a sort of you know, a positive outcome happen in earlier in your career that you can in some ways perhaps leverage for future endeavors. So particularly too, when, you know, basically all of your net worth is sort of like tied up in this one particular company, you know, there, there is, you know, what, what, particularly when we did sell, when the market is a fairly seller friendly environment, it's something that after some time you, you have to consider, I think, in terms of de-risking yourself and thinking about, you know, how you can use that, those assets sort of going forward. And then also, I think from a, from a, you know, from a sizing perspective, it seems to me the inflection point in search is kind of once you have a business that goes above four million in EBITDA, that's kind of a, a barometer wherein lower middle market private equity firms will start to be interested in those size of companies these days. Below that it can be a bit more challenging. So once we also got to that point, it was increasingly something that gave us conviction about selling. What kind of advice did you get from folks you reached out to just to hear their thoughts on timing of selling and thinking about it and planning, perhaps even starting to plan your life after a sale? Like what, what advice did folks give you? Yeah, most people I, I kind of sought their counsel on early on were, were supportive of it. I think many people understood that, you know, I had an interest in doing further things in the entrepreneurial M&A world beyond running this one particular business in this one particular end market. And my interests you know, span the gamut. Ultimately, I hopefully endeavor to be sort of a serial acquirer of companies and work across different industries and you know, perhaps different com- companies, different geographies, all that kind of thing. So while it's an incredible journey and opportunity to be a small business owner, at some point, if you, if you want to do more things at once, it is a little bit constraining in that respect. So understanding that most people thought it was you know, a wise time to sell. And also, particularly in 2021, we'd had, you know, in the broader economy, a very long period of, of growth, you know, since the, you know, financial recession and, you know, 2007, eight timeline. So we thought probably, you know, that would last into perpetuity. So, you know, given the, the wider market dynamics, we thought it was probably a good time to sell and people realize the same. How long before you actually sold did you start thinking about selling? And then what sorts of things did you do to prepare the business? Yeah, I'd say probably four to five months before we sort of kickstarted a search to find a, a bank to represent us. We sort of were thinking about it. We were through the ad and acquisition we did, we, we, we got to the sort of the earnings level we thought was appropriate and also, from a lifestyle perspective, we kind of you know knew that we wanted a bit of a change change in our sort of weekly routine. So yeah, it was about four or five months before we then basically had the full conviction on it, and then we went about actually trying to you know find a firm to represent us. And that in itself can take you know at least a month, perhaps two months, to properly vet and interview some of the intermediaries who were candidates and receive some of their evaluation materials, have conversations with them, and find the best mutual fit. Yeah, I want to ask you about choosing a banker versus going directly to buyers that you might be interested in. But before doing that, like four to five months before selling a business, might you might have time to do some things, but maybe not have time to do others. If you were looking two, three years down the road and wanted to sell at that point, what sorts of things would you do to prepare your business for, for selling in two to three years? Yeah, it's a good question. So I think a number of things. I think number one, you have to almost put yourself in the buyer's shoes 
and understanding that they're going to be evaluating your business in the same way you evaluated that business a number of years prior. You know, what are the kinds of things that they might be looking for? What, what attributes of the business do you think they're going to really hone in on and make sure that those are sort of accounted for? So for instance, you know, most of these companies, there's quite a bit of operational things to improve in those first handful of years. So I think you definitely want to focus on improving operations in a way that can extract meaningful data from the company. So for instance, I definitely would be keen on trying to ensure that I'm tracking key performance indicators and developing some sort of dashboards, things like that, that whether it's a weekly or monthly basis, you're able to extract data from the company that will be important to ultimately socialize to a buyer who's really going to want to dig deep and understand certain elements of your business. You don't want that to be an afterthought where you sort of have to go back in time and sort of recreate the data. It's much better if you're tracking it and developing the processes to do so real time and, and you actually have a few years of data to present to buyers. I'd say another thing is regarding personnel, understanding that many buyers will evaluate your company differently and have different thoughts on how to stack the business on a go-forward basis. If there are some key sort of gaping holes from a personnel standpoint, I think it's it's important to try to fill those in and give those people enough headroom in terms of having worked at the company leading up to the sale, which you, I think, probably don't want to avoid is a scenario where you really understand fundamentally that a few key areas of the business are significantly understaffed in terms of middle or even senior managers, and then only hire those people a handful of months before the sale. Because from a buyer's perspective, perhaps those people don't have too much experience yet in critically important roles. So while they may have their own ways to fill those gaps, if you can have people who've been there for some decent longevity in meaningful roles in the business, that's definitely a plus from a buyer's perspective. And then I'd say whatever your sort of, whatever are essential tenets of your thesis of what you're propagating to the buyer about what are the opportunities that lie ahead, I think you need to do things that are sort of consistent with articulating that. So for instance, if part of your sale thesis is not just the organic business, but that there are a lot of M&A opportunities and add-on acquisitions to be had going forward, I think it would behoove you a couple of years before selling to actually go out and connect with some of those potential prospects, develop communication with them. If you haven't done one of you know, an add-on acquisition, at least you get some to a, you know, a fairly developed point. Take notes on all these conversations, really canvas the M&A landscape so that you have some tangible content, so to speak, to deliver to the prospective buyer of, you know, here's a potential runway of a series of acquisitions you could do that have been given some serious thought before the sale. And then I've I've even heard some operators say that if they knew that they were selling, they would operate the business a little bit differently. Maybe there's less, you know, long-term project investing versus more near-term kind of shoring up certain processes. Is is that something you subscribe to? Or, the, or do, like, how would you run a business any differently, if at all, if you were going to sell in the next couple of years? Aside from the things I just said, I, I think, you know, fairly steady Eddie. One thing I definitely would be maybe a little bit more attuned to is continuity of employees. I think if there is a lot of ter- employee turnover leading up to a sale, that can be something that is is challenging. And, and clearly, you, you don't want to hang on to people that perhaps have or, or toxic or divisive culturally. But I think ensuring that you're your key managers are, are happy and genuinely satisfied in their job and really see the long-term viability of staying at a company like that is important. So um, you know, whether you, you further incentivize people or you just have more frequent touch points with them to ensure that their job satisfaction is very high, that will go a long way to retaining your critical managers in a way that you're not showing you know, six months before the sale that, you know, three of your top five managers left idiosyncratically and you may have been able to stymie that through communicating about their career prospects better. Gotcha. Yeah, that makes sense. So moving into the the banker versus direct-to-buyer conversation, what made you choose to hire a bank to represent the company versus going directly to buyers that you thought might be a good fit? Yeah, so I think there are a number of things in relation to that. 
Number one is just from a, a bandwidth perspective, there's a lot of work that goes into identifying potential buyers of the business. Potentially in some industries, if there is a very natural strategic incumbent, or there are maybe only a few of them in a very niche industry, perhaps, that you think would be very interested, it might be easier to kind of you know call those people up and, and start some dialogue. But I think for our business, we were it was unclear to us whether it would be a strategic or a financial sponsor. And given that we weren't sure where the majority of the interest would lie, it was just, a, it would be very challenging for us to really draw up what that list of potential buyers would be. And typically, if you want to make a process pretty competitive, you are reaching out oftentimes to a pretty large group of people on both sides, strategic and private equity. And I frankly just, I, I you know, while I, I knew some strategics that might be natural fits that had companies or were companies in the laboratory equipment world at large, on the private equity side, I definitely would not have known where to start. And that's where, you know, many of these investment banks can be extremely critical because they have great relationships with and have historically done many transactions with these kinds of firms. And then what kind of criteria or questions did you ask to filter through which banks would be a good fit? Like what, what was important in, in considering what bank to go with? Yeah, I think so. That's interesting because at the outset, I wasn't sure how important it was for someone to have healthcare experience. There aren't many investment banks that specifically focus on the biopharmaceutical world or you know, biopharmaceutical equipment service. Certainly, it's it's probably too niche of a of a sector. But some did have pretty strong healthcare experience, and I was kind of uncertain initially how much I would value that versus my just sort of general conviction in the ability to execute, you know, timely. And ultimately, actually, we definitely did speak with some firms that had healthcare events and perhaps had relationships with some potential strategics. But ultimately, actually, for us, I thought that more important was, was really just kind of the, the relationship with the senior individuals that would be running the process and, and the, the head relationship folks. And people who had really kind of like a vested interest in ensuring an optimal outcome for us, whether it was your reputation or, or having worked with other searchers, you know, from a similar business school or background. In my particular instance, I had a reference from searchers a few years ahead of me that spoke extremely highly of the firm we ended up using. And given that prior relationship, I had a lot of faith that they would sort of do right by that and, and, ensure the process went as smooth as possible. So at the end of the day, you definitely want to make sure a firm, this, the size of your companies and their bandwidth, I think working with a firm that represents much larger businesses perhaps would, would be suboptimal in the sense that they might not care about yours as much on a relative basis because their fees are going to be proportionately a lot less. But for me, it's about, it's about execution. There's so much that goes on in the sale process that is a bit of a grunt in terms of you know, populating data rooms and, and cutting information many different ways for buyers and really adhering to the proposed timeline as it relates to the major milestones in that sale process. And when you work with a bank that really is sort of dedicated and committed to that timeline that they say at the outset, it's a really nice feeling because you always just have you know peace of mind that the process is moving along at the speed that has been sort of socialized at the outset. And you feel like you don't have to be you on them to to execute certain things. And that ended up being the case. And in retrospect, I was very pleased that I picked a bank that while they didn't necessarily have tremendous specific healthcare experience, their execution was absolutely top notch. And that really helped. You got you gotta keep in mind here when you're when you're going through the sale process, you're also running the business at the same time. You're kind of moonlighting with two wildly different roles. So to the extent you can economize on your time in terms of all of the data requests and all of the discussions with the prospective interested parties and actually make sure the business is moving along smoothly. That's really helpful. And the bank can be instrumental in freeing up your time to actually work on the business and not spending the vast majority of your time on the sale process. When you started to receive offers after the bank helped you know put together all your materials, just share a little bit about what the types of offers 
you got were like? Like, what did some, what, what, what interested you with some of the offers and then, you know, others? And what was the typical style of offer that you received? I'd say most offers were broadly similar structurally. There weren't any you know, super outliers in terms of you know, requesting sort of things that would be atypical in, in, a, in a standard letter of intent. For me, the buyers who expressed a lot of interest at the outset and wanted to have in-person meetings right away, that to me was definitely kind of an important litmus test for people that I thought had you know, real genuine interest in the business and would, you know, be the ones that would ultimately, you know, probably be actually the most interested and want to move forward at a quick pace. So those in-person meetings were very important. I think when you meet people in person too, there's that sense of trustworthiness, that human element that's very important. And the people that I think resonated most with us definitely were people that were, you know, super high quality people, you know, looked you in the eye, shook your hand, you kind of felt like, you, they would honor you know, everything that they said. And that's also important. Like ultimately, it, ultimately, at the end of the day, you can get a, you know, as many offers as you want, as many purchase prices. But if you don't close the transaction itself, it, you know, it's kind of for naught and actually can cause more disturbances to your business if you actually go through a busted sale process. And at, at some point in time, if you let employees know about it and they think there's an imminent closing and something goes awry, that can really derail things. So I think you need to be very cognizant of who is going to actually close on this and hopefully on an expedited timeline. But most offers structurally were, were sort of similar in terms of there being you know, a headline purchase price. And yeah, I think nowadays for lots of these you know, private equity deals, there typically isn't too much in a way of like seller financing or you know, some, some, there are some earnouts I've seen and things of that nature. But Really, the one thing I think to negotiate beyond purchase price or is the amount of rollover equity in the business that you're going to reinvest in the company and also the terms and the, really the length of the post-closing consulting agreement through which you'll continue to be a part of the company after you sell. What are typical terms, both for the seller financing and rollover? Like, What's, what's typical and what were you offered in, in terms of a range? For us, there there wasn't there wasn't seller financing. I think those are probably more common in sort of like search fund transactions when you're buying a business at a little bit of a earlier stage in its development when they're smaller. I think for most seller notes, it's kind of typical to be a five year seller note. Sometimes maybe you can negotiate interest only in the first or second year. I think in many search transactions, you're trying to you know get the seller note to be somewhere between between ten and twenty. Five percent of the purchase price, you know, if possible. In terms of the rollover equity, I think my understanding is that kind of industry norm is that maybe in terms of the personal equity consideration that the searcher gets in a sale, that about maybe thirty percent of that would be reasonable to be asked to roll into the transaction. And you know, the, you know then you'd obviously you know it sort of aligns incentives in the sense that you have a significant you know ongoing investment in a company and given that you've been a an operator of this you know small medium sized business and have a lot of on the ground knowledge you know you can help the next buyer to continue to grow the business be a sounding board maybe be on the board directors that kind of thing so even within like Roldo you talked about like evaluating different buyers and who would be most likely to close if you have rollover equity, you also have to evaluate who's most likely to actually have a successful exit since that's now a part of your deal. How did you think through that with the different folks who offered some sort of rollover as part of the structure or part of the offer? Yeah, that, that's totally right. So in, in my particular instance, you know, we, we valued cash up front a little bit more than rollover equity in the general sense that it would allow us to then diversify the you know, proceeds from a sale among other investments, perhaps in the search ecosystem and, and other things that we had ideas to execute on entrepreneurially. But you're, you're totally right. I mean, you want to ensure that certainly not only is the buyer someone who is you know, a person of their word and going to you know, transact quickly and make the diligence process digestible and not overly time consuming, but that they're actually going to perform well. So yeah, I think you, you definitely want to ask questions about their historical track record and understand what areas they've been successful in in terms of industry and market, 
you should definitely feel free to ask them about prior deals, particularly if they have companies that while they might not do exactly what your company does, there are some adjacencies to it. Getting a sense of how those have performed is, is totally fair game. And you know, I presume that most of these firms should be pretty transparent with that kind of information because it is sort of a bilateral courting process, right? I mean, you, they're courting you, but you're also courting them. And, and ultimately, these are people that you are going to be working with in some way, shape, or form for a number of years post-transaction. And it's ideal for you to always be on strong terms and always even beyond the specified consulting arrangement, you know, just be understood. You're always going to take their phone call, right? You'd be happy to serve on the board if they ask you to. You want that kind of nice arrangement interpersonally. So you just want to make sure there are people that you from you feel comfortable with from that social perspective. But yeah, you definitely do need to take into account, particularly the more equity you, you perhaps have to roll, depending on the competitive dynamics or your personal proclivity for rolling. You want to make sure that that's going to hopefully grow over time and be a, a source of income down the line once once that firm sells. What are some expectations that buyers would have if they asked you to roll some equity? Do they, If that happens and that's part of the offer, does that typically mean they want that previous owner to stick around in some advisor board capacity, actively work in the business? What do they ask you and then what have you found to be typical? So in terms of consulting period, the definitely standard. I've seen everything depending on the situation from as early as a six-month transitional agreement to up to two years. If it does go beyond a year, year and a half, typically the time you're required to work on a weekly basis will, will decrease over time. So definitely out of the gates, I think it's very typical to kind of like, you know, be working 40-hour work weeks, be physically present at the business if it's a, you know, a work-in-person kind of company, almost as if you never left there you know, for that first six-month uh, interval. And then you see it's you know, oftentimes, I think, taper down where maybe that 40 hours goes to 30 or 20 over time. And then after some other period of time, you can then start to work remotely. So it's really up to you and the buyer to negotiate that. I think generally, if there's a strategic buyer you're likely to have a shorter consulting period because they are more likely to have staff and knowledge of the industry and, and people in their camp to, to pick up where you left off in a more seamless way. If it's a private equity firm that may have not invested in this particular kind of business before, perhaps they want you to stay there a little bit longer and will be a little bit more reliant on you to distill more knowledge in that interim phase. So I think you just need to be flexible on that front. And then, so we didn't talk about that, but like, what's the, what was your, what was your thinking on comparing a sale to an, a strategic versus a private equity firm? How did they differ in your view? I think you know, a strategic, I think probably, you know, we, I think we had a very sort of ordinary consulting term. I think perhaps with a strategic, you know, it could have even been shorter potentially. I mean, I've, I've heard instances yeah, just anecdotally, where strategic will, you know, will buy a business and basically, you know, they, they don't even necessarily want you there. And it's not necessarily a personal thing whatsoever. It's more just like they know, they, they know what they're doing, they're experienced in the sector, and they want the employees of your, of your former business at that point to really congeal around the new management team that they're going to put in place. And you oftentimes, you know, it's pretty typical for employees that you've worked with for many years to kind of be going back to you, know, you a lot because they're just so used to working with you. And that can cause a little bit of a communication dynamic that's not optimal for a buyer. So sometimes it's actually easier for them to sever that earlier than later and just, you know, have the understanding that, you know, those people, you know, they're great and all that, but, you know, they're gone. And now here's the new management team that is going to be taking the reins. For a sponsor, if they're not as familiar with the industry, or even if they are just from a bandwidth perspective, you know, it's often helpful for you to be on for a little bit longer and a little bit more consultative of a role in, your, in the organization post-closing, even when you're consulting. And I think it's probably more likely for a sponsor to want you to be on the board going forward than a strategic. And then you mentioned earlier that you're kind of moonlighting two different roles, one managing the process, but also still running the business. So in the running the business side, when you think of communication and who's in the know, who's not, 
I imagine a group like someone like your board is probably pretty aware of what's going on. But how do you think about communication of this deal process with your board versus key employees and managers versus kind of the whole team? Like, what what was your thinking on communicating different parts of the deal to each group? Right. Definitely. I think you definitely need to, you know, keep your board involved in this kind of thing. I mean, typically, in at least most operating agreements, you know, the board has to sign off on that. So you definitely need to keep them abreast of what's going on in the sale process and even the initial decision to launch a sale process. As it relates to your employees, I think it's, it's challenging. I think at the beginning of due diligence, I think you almost have no choice if to some extent, probably you can, you might be able to get away with it until you have a signed LOI, but that they're forward once you know, more intense due diligence begins. I think you have to at least bring in your senior, the senior person in your financial and accounting group. So for us, you know, like a controller type person, I think has to be part of it because there is a lot of financial, there's a lot of financial stuff they want to see and you know, cut different ways and, and all that kind of thing. And it's very challenging, I think, for that process to proceed smoothly without someone who's in the thick of it doing this stuff on a daily basis to get involved quickly. Also, they're going to be you know dual tracking their own quality of earnings analysis and have their own advisors asking lots of questions on the financial side early on. So the idea of being the sole quarterback and not letting your controller know about those types of things seems to me very improbable. And even if you tried, frankly, to not do it, I think from if all of a sudden you know you 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 probably haven't been you know in your own QuickBooks file a tremendous amount and some of the relevant software systems that produce this data. If all of a sudden you're just you're asking a million questions about minutia details that you never would have asked before, they're going to pick up pretty quickly that something's going on. So I think it's better just to be straightforward with that particular person in your financial group sooner than later. As it relates to other employees, I typically my my instinct is to steer on the side of not communicating a sale to them until things are much more progressed. There are many reasons that a deal could die, and it's oftentimes at no fault to anyone in the equation. It's just that after learning certain things about the company, a buyer reasonably you know changes their mind about something. Their initial thesis did not come to fruition. Perhaps there are, you know, depending on the quality of your financials and what you've been articulating to the buyer, maybe there's some discrepancy that totally unbeknownst to you, they found. So for all those reasons, you know, a a deal could just go away. And if you've just socialized your team upon signing the LOI or beforehand that you're, you're embarking on this process, it really does cause a lot of consternation and stress among the employee base at large. Oftentimes people even despite you potentially trying to allay their fears that, you know, nothing is going to change with their job. You know, everyone is remaining on board business as usual. Many people might be skeptical of that. And what you don't want is an ecosystem and where everyone is fearing that some radical change is happening that they have no control over. And then they get spooked and try to look for other jobs. And you'd be shocked how quickly, you know, rumors and things can fly around these small businesses. So I think better to stay a little bit tight-lipped about it until it gets towards the very end of the process. As the process evolves, too, it's very reasonable for any buyer to also ask to have some communication with some of your your key personnel. So in that sense, you're likely going to have to mention to some of your top managers what's going on. But typically, you can structure that to be later in the process once you know things are much more formalized and you're you're down to just kind of negotiating the last couple of things in a purchase agreement sort of thing. And and there's a lot of visibility to closing. At that point, you feel much more comfortable having a select group of people within the company knowing about the transaction and and speaking with them about it with the buyer. But I I wouldn't typically tell, I wouldn't really be an advocate of telling even the majority of folks at the company until the sale is complete. And then once the sale is complete, you can have an announcement with, with the buyer and however they would like to do it, but then everyone can know once you, you formally close. What was the reaction from your team when you announced the the sale to the the full company? What, what was kind of the mix of reactions? I'd be really curious to hear. Yeah, I, I think it, I, people took it in good stride. I, I mean, I'm definitely fortunate to work with a great group of people. 
Yeah, some people were definitely a little surprised or thought it was a little bit earlier than they expected. Maybe they expected it a few years away, but not that particular moment. Some, I think it, it, it didn't, it weren't really phased at all. It's just sort of, they've, they've been in companies before that transition ownership and some that have, you know, many times in, in prior jobs they've been at and it wasn't really a big deal to them. But, you know, credit to them. I think they took it in stride. They were very reasonable about it. And yeah, they, they, you know, did everything they were asked to in terms of the transition. You know, it's always a little challenging from an interpersonal perspective because you do develop these, you know, at least I was lucky enough to develop great relationships with some of my key employees, people who I you know, deeply respect and still to this day. And that part of it w- was always tough because some did know about it coming into the final bits of the, the sale process because they were, you know, incorporated into your know, discussions with the, with the buyer, but some, well, some didn't fully. And you do feel a little bit strange about not telling people that you're close with and work hand in hand with every day about it. But, and also you, you're just, you become friends with many of these people. So there's an element of, you know, you know, that friendship while you know, hopefully can remain intact in some way, shape or form in the future. It's not going to be the same type of relationship perhaps. And they know that there is a term after which you're not going to physically be on site at the company anymore. So it can be a little bit sad in that way. But, you know, there's also excitement about, you know, the, the path that lies ahead and hopefully the, the next level of the company that can be hopefully fruitful for everyone involved. So it's a mixed bag of emotions for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Can you talk a little bit more about your consulting agreement? What was kind of the rough time period and what did those kind of day-to-day responsibilities look like maybe at first and then after, you know, three to six months, how did it start to evolve? Yeah, for sure. So ours was kind of like down the middle, you know, 12 months overall. But the, the six months, the first six months were the most weighty. So I definitely spent the majority of my time working closely with the new uh, CEO of the company. It was actually a very fun period of time for me. I enjoyed you know, working alongside someone who was, was was very smart, who I respected a lot. And you learning, honestly, it's, it's, an oppor- it's really it's an opportunity to continue learning from someone new and get a new perspective, a new angle on things, see how they leverage some of their past experience to implement new processes and procedures that, you know, it's, it's sometimes you might be like, you know, how did I never even think of that over my you know, prior four to six years being there? So yeah, the, the, the first, you know, four to six months were sort of normal business hours, but you know, I was on site you know, every day kind of thing, working hand in hand and, and then being delegated any tasks that came up and, and trying to run those down. So really just, you know, at, you know, the owners and the new CEOs, you know, request doing being flexible. I think that's one thing you really got to be sort of available to intellectually and emotionally is just, you're not the owner anymore. And it just happens like that. You know, you, you close a deal and your, your role radically changes. You're there to help support the new owners, the new managers, et cetera. And you really, you know, I think should just do what they say, do a solid by them as they presumably done you know, by you during the due diligence process and just try to be amicable and help them out as much as humanly possible. So yeah, the first four to six months were on site, normal business hours, that kind of thing. And then after that, it was, you know, more ability to work remote and, you know, the responsibility levels tailed off as the, the new group got their wings underneath them and really understood the business and then, you know, took it from there. And so then what's your role today? Like what, how much communication do you have today? Or is there, like, what's the extent of your responsibility today now that that consulting period has ended at this point, right? Yes. Yeah. So I'm, I'm, I continue to be on the board, but yeah, more or less now it's kind of going to a board meeting once a quarter. I'm always open to be, you know, an advisor in any way, shape, or form they'd ever want, but they're totally self-sufficient and doing their thing. So at this point, they they don't need they don't need me too much beyond some you know board help. Gotcha. That's good to hear. What what's the what's the way so far that you've relaxed and kind of decompressed from being a, a CEO? I'm every CEO seems to have their own different kind of couple of months or couple of years after selling that you know they either go on some spiritual trip or they relax on a beach for a little bit or just play with family and it's kind of business as usual. Like what was your method for just relaxing? So I'd say to start, even in the transition period, 
you're typically, I guess, starting here. When, when you're when you're the CEO of a company, you often work a lot, and it's just sort of in your DNA, right? You, the outcomes of the fruits of your labor every day are so tied up with, within what you do. And I think once you get to that consulting stage, you you kind of can appreciate the fact that you know my consulting agreement is more or less a forty hour work week, and you don't need to necessarily be like pulling the long nights or working on the weekends and doing those kinds of things that you ordinarily might have. So you know, provided you're actually fulfilling the requirements of your consulting arrangement, I would definitely encourage people to not be overly exerting themselves. You know, you don't need to be responding to every email at 11 o'clock at night at midnight, right? That's not your role anymore. And you can do that stuff within normal business hours. So even starting right after the sale to try to incorporate a little bit of more healthy things in your life that perhaps may have been missing or you know subdued, so to speak, is great. So getting a regular workout schedule back in place, if maybe that's when a drift, you know, diet, you know, other kinds of things that during a stressful sale process, in particular, when you're really working a lot, because <laughs> running the business and the sale process, getting back on track physically, mentally like that, I think is really important. Once I got more extricated from the consulting agreement and was was back in New York full-time and my responsibilities decreased, yeah, I think it really is important to take some time to you know, enjoy life. And for that, that can be so different for so many people. But for me, personally, I hadn't spent as much time with my family as I had wanted over those years. So Spending more time with my immediate family. I have a number of family members who live in the Long Island area, some in Texas. Being able to schedule some trips with them was really, really important for me. In addition, I was only seeing my now fiance on on weekends for an extended period of time, particularly during the consulting period when I was definitely up there five days a week and getting back super late on Fridays and going up at the crack of dawn on Mondays. Being able to spend more time with her was really important for me. Yeah, I was able to take on some new hobbies, some new sports things that I was interested in doing. You know, I started playing you know, a little more squash you know, over the last six months, a little more golf and some of those things that I'd always said to myself, you know, I would take more time to invest in, but never really had. I was able to avail myself of. And then, yeah, definitely threw in a few fun trips, you know, a couple international trips, things like that, that were a great way to spend time and see the world, which was much more challenging when you're running a business with, with the intensity with which we did. Yeah, I think you, you really got to hold yourself to that standard. And as tempting as it might be, sometimes to just jump back full throttle into the fray of things and, all right, what's the next deal? What's the next deal kind of thing? Like you, re- you genuinely do have your whole life to do that. So in that very special moment, when you come out of that consulting period, I think you really got to assess your life and what your priorities are. And if you've been living consistent with those or not during the last four or five years, and if you haven't really try to change the pie chart of your life and it requires thought, it requires deliberate, you know, deliberate acts every day. It requires you to fight some of your instincts to, you know, perhaps keep working or working late at night or weekends that you're sort of is ingrained in your DNA. But you got to start setting some boundaries in terms of work and personal and make sure you're living a balanced life. I hear the travel and the health one a lot. And it's, it's kind of interesting too, because you now have a lot more financial security either to choose what you want to work on or not work at all if that's, if that's what happened, but also this tremendous amount of personal freedom that's really opened up that you haven't had for you know, many years. With the health one, I hear that one a lot. Are you going to be at, like in six months, if we have another podcast, are you going to be ripped and just, you know, in the best <laughs> shape of your life? Like what's any, any thoughts there? Any plans there? Well, I mean, that, I guess it's all in the eye of the beholder, but no, I mean, I, I definitely have taken, you know, my, my, I definitely have been trying to prioritize you know, working out for me. I, you know, played sports since I was a young kid and really enjoy athletic activity. So you know, squash is something that for me, I, I've really sort of picked up more in the last six months and I absolutely love it. It's the combination of, I, I love racket sports in general, but it's also just an unbelievably incredible workout. So I think my cardio has definitely improved drastically just from that alone. But yeah, I, I've always enjoyed, you know, physical activity. For me, it's very cathartic mentally, physically, 
I think it actually helps me focus better when I am working and it helps regulate my sleep better, which was something, you know, during um, the first couple of years in particular of this entrepreneurial endeavor, I was not doing well on the sleep side of things, you know, due to, you know, ordinary course stress and other things in my mind. So for me, exercise is like very, very important. And I think you, you while you're it's kind of backtracking a little bit, but when you're, when you're a CEO of a company, you can say you're going to work out after work, but so many times you show up to the office and a million things hit your plate that you never would have expected. And there's a million fire drills and you oftentimes can't fully control the trajectory of your day. So I think one thing I did not do a good job on was establishing a morning cadence of workouts that you can at least control the timing of. Because oftentimes after a long day, you're just so beat. And as much as you are well-intentioned to go work out, it just it's the last thing on your mind when you're so depleted of energy. So yeah, but it's, it's been fun for me to be able to do some of these things more consistently and than I have. And now that I'm not physically working in an office, I can also do some of these things like at odd time, like during the day, you know, at, at noon or two p.m. or at times when many other people are are working. So while this won't last forever in my life, there is this nice little window that you should, uh, I think, take advantage of and and try to do those things that are holistically helpful for you. Yeah, definitely doing errands at you know odd hours like two p.m. on a Tuesday. Definitely been there before. I worked on that podcast full time after getting married until this past March. And I remember like my favorite time to go grocery shopping was like Monday at 9.30. That was the absolute perfect time. <laughs> no, Absolutely nobody is there. It's right, really quiet. Right. I, I love doing that. The health piece is really interesting, especially uh, exercise. And I agree, like afternoon, I'm there's just so much that's piled up at the end of the end of the day that there's, I don't really feel like I can take the time at the end of the day to work out. So morning tends to you know, occupy that time. Do you think that's a habit you could have developed as a CEO, but just didn't prioritize at the time? Or do you think that's just something that, you know, life as a CEO just won't allow that most of the time? And that's just kind of a fact of life you have to work your way around. I think, I think sort of intermediate there. I think it is a little bit harder when you're a CEO because you just have so many tugs on your time each day. So you'll be incrementally maybe more tired than in prior jobs. But I think if you're disciplined, you, you can, you know, you can just, you know, just kind of suck it up and say, all right, I'm going to be at the gym at, you know, 6.30 to 7.30, something like that, you know, shower, get into the office. And I, I've seen other people do it much better than me and who are doing that very consistently while they're CEOs with stressful jobs. So I, I think it is attainable. I, I tend personally, I'm just not great in the morning. I'm not a morning person by by nature. So it's a little bit harder for me, but I think with discipline, you, you, you can do it. Yeah. It's interesting. You mentioned that you tend to focus better if you exercise that day. I find the same thing. So I wonder if for the, I wonder if CEOs who have stronger morning exercise routines with a healthy diet, if, if they find that they're, they have stronger mental clarity throughout the day, or if your emotions are more balanced and you kind of you take hits a little more gently than you would otherwise. I wonder if have you found that to be just anecdotally something that's true across CEOs you've met or, or talked to or know? I, I I think so. Yeah. In my, in my limited experience, I do think so. I think people, if you can get a good morning workout in, a good sweating, I think it brings almost like a, a feeling of you know, equanimity, of, of stability kind of, and, and you're able to address things during the day with a little more poise. And that level-headedness, I do think help you. I do think helps you make better decisions, but also to when things are going a little bit awry potentially in a day, to to take them with a little bit more, you know, sense of calm that things are going to be fine, and just you know step back and let's think rationally and and sort of battle through this without getting too flustered. Yeah, absolutely. My first closing question for you is around beliefs. What's a strongly held belief you've changed your mind on? Yeah. So as it relates to business management, I think that when I got to ATG, that personalities are are malleable and that even if there were certain people there that perhaps were a little bit toxic culturally or wouldn't sort of play by the rules in certain areas that you could fix those kinds of things. 
And to my chagrin, that proved to be not the case, I think, in a lot of instances. So and I, I distinguish that from like skill set development. I think that there are many there there are certain people that have a lot of potential or are being under optimized for any number of reasons. They just or in the wrong role, or they don't have certain skill sets that they that you can help them develop over time and really become a better performer as time evolves. So I think you can absolutely, as a good CEO, motivate people and help them to perform their job better or expand their skill set and perform other areas of jobs better. But from a fundamental personality perspective, I think that the people who are very early on are clearly demonstrating that they are less likely to you know, abide by you know, your employee handbook, for instance, and do things in a timely manner and sort of just the basic nuts and bolts of you know, sort of respect for employees, that kind of thing. I think it's harder to change people to act you know, as, a, you know, as a team player and have that mindset. And that's where you might have some tough decisions early on about you know, who stays and who, who needs to go. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. That's a that's a similar kind of theme we've heard through through the podcast too. That's definitely not not just you. What's the best business you've ever seen? So I'll say without naming a specific business, I, I do think that the kind of business we were engaged in, but but brought more broadly speaking, independent service providers on sort of niche mission critical equipment in certain end markets, whether they're laboratory, healthcare. I've seen a couple of businesses that service certain industrial kinds of equipment where the maintenance schedule on them is mandated by things like, you know, OSHA requirements. Those ones where there is a lot of predictability, where sometimes where, where they're very important or fundamentally important to whatever process is being done at that company and where you have original equipment manufacturers that have a significant amount of the aftermarket service share, but are a little bit perhaps asleep at the wheel and taking a lot of time to get on site and disappointing customers and charging a fortune, those are really good opportunities where an independent service provider with strong technical acumen can come in and disrupt that market and take some market share. And oftentimes as businesses have things like contracts where you know customers are signing up for one or a multi-year period. Oftentimes you're billing them upfront so there's good cash flow dynamics. So for many reasons I like those kinds of companies. Yeah, Crane Tech is a good example of of one of those. We had Eric and Austin on the podcast a little while ago, and they certainly have a business that's kind of like that too. And, and I think they they rebranded. I, I told them to you know let me know when I can buy a T shirt from them, but I don't know. I don't know if that's happened yet. Yeah, so yeah. It's a good reminder to send them a text. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, they, they, their business is terrific, uh, and those guys are great. So, hundred percent. Yeah, they're that's a fascinating one. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. This has been. Really, really fun to chat about selling your business and all that. There's there's so much here that we could keep going on, but I really appreciate you sharing your time. It's good to, good to chat again. Yeah, likewise. Thanks so much for having me on. Pleasure. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you enjoyed the show, please consider leaving us a review and telling a friend to help more folks find Think Like an Owner. I also want to thank our show's sponsors, Live Oak Bank, Put In Strong, Overly Risk Strategies, More Staffing, and Oakborn Advisors for their support. For full episode transcripts and more information, please visit our website at alexbridgman.com slash podcast.